Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about green amendments and how we can secure our rights to a healthy environment. And my guest is Maya Van Rossum. Hi, Maya. Hi, how are you, Rob? Good. How do you like our introductory music? Appropriate? I loved it. (laughs) Talking heads are great. Um, So let me tell everyone else about who you are. Uh, Maya Van Rossum, as the Delaware River Keeper, has been championing the rights of over 17 million people to a free-flowing, clean, and healthy Delaware River and its tributary streams. In 2013, she was on the original petition. She was one of the original petitioners in the landmark Robinson Township versus Commonwealth of Pennsylvania case, and that case led to a watershed victory that strengthened the state's environmental rights amendment. Since 2002, Maya has served as an adjunct professor and director of the Environmental Law Clinic at Temple Beasley School of Law, which she founded. The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Environment, is a book published by Disruption Books in 2017. Uh, Maya, it's great to have you on the show today. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk about this uh, very important message we're going to talk about today. Yeah, well, it's just... It feels like old home because we frequently have watershed people of one stripe or another, you know, talking about their places. And so we're looking forward to learning more about the Delaware River, but particularly this this national uh, initiative that um, I understand it it, it goes back to um, back 2008 when you were traveling up in your mother's home out in central mass in central Pennsylvania. Yeah, my mother um, had left me a piece of property she had bought in central Pennsylvania that she just wanted to preserve as beautiful, natural, open space. Um, She never got a chance to build the cabin she had dreamed of on the property, but after she passed away, I took every penny she shared with me in a big loan, and I built her cabin and was starting to enjoy it with my new husband and um, our kids, his kids and my kids. And then, lo and behold, the, the region started to succumb to the fracking industry. And long story short, our ability to enjoy the beautiful natural lands my mother had left to me really got ruined. Um, and it was just devastating when we would go there to enjoy the natural lands my mother had left to me and just knowing fracking was going on all around and our beautiful peace in the forest succumbed to the noises of the trucking day in and day out, the trucking associated with the fracking industry that was happening nearby. Um, And it was, you know, as a result of all of that, um, as well as my work at the Delaware Riverkeeper and the fact that the fracking industry was threatening to cut through, drill through our beautiful Delaware River watershed that um, not only opened my eyes to the devastation of that industry, but um, really put me on a path that was the genesis of this new National Green Amendments movement that we'll be talking about. 
Yeah, there you are, right at ground zero, right on top of the Marcella Shale. And um, yeah, tell me more. Yeah, no, I mean, it was just devastating. You know, we had enjoyed the natural lands, and we went to enjoy the cabin and went and visited one of our, one of our neighbors in, in around 2008, and, and he started talking about this, you know, he, he, he had heard from these gas drillers about this new source of, quote-unquote, clean energy, where, you know, they could create clean energy, protect the environment, and all of the landowners in the region could, you know, create lots of money, right, for their own pockets, do Get good money, and, right. and support their families. Um, and what the what the landmen and the frackers weren't sharing with people was that actually they were lying. That this industry was devastating for our environment, was devastating for water resources, for forests, for air quality, and for climate change. Um, and that it it really wasn't about doing right by anybody except for the fossil fuel industry themselves. And, you know, a lot of people in, in, in the region and across Pennsylvania have since that time been sacrificed to this devastating industry. So my story of the loss of the, of the special lands my mother shared with me, they were lost because the land and the enjoyment of the land got ruined. And so we ended up returning the land to the, to the person who had sold the property to my mother and sort of wanted to bring it back into his family fold. And we ended up moving on to another special place in, in New York that we preserve in my mother's memory. But that place too now is being threatened by the fracking industry. And in that context, it's by pipelines. Um, so it seems, you know, almost impossible to get away from them. But yet we have to because our earth is literally, you know, on the brink of the irreversible devastations of climate change. And we very literally have the next decade to turn things around. We can turn things around. But mine is just, you know, one of millions of stories of the many ways that the fracking industry is, is devastating lives. Well, you make a good point that is often missed that there's one thing to fight the frackers. There's the other issue of pipelines being put in, and, and you know, that is an equally devastating thing. And uh, so there are just a number of initiatives, which is, I mean, I'm really glad you're on the show because as the Delaware Riverkeeper, you've got that perspective of how all these different threats interconnect. So let's pick up the, the chase there. You had the, the Delaware River Network. They, you set to work researching the laws of, you know, how are you going to stop this encroaching fracking into uh, your watershed. Yeah, and, we, you know, um, after I, I had gone up, you know, and, and heard the story from my neighbor of this incredible money-making, environmentally protective industry, you know, I, I, I went back to, to, to the office and was talking with my colleague, and it was around that time we started getting calls in our offices at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network about people who were hearing from these same landmen, you know, and, and wondering what this was all about. And we had already started doing our research and were already learning about the devastations of drilling and fracking. At that time, it was not well known, but the science that was emerging was showing, right, that, that the landmen and the frackers were really misleading the public when it came to the environmental um, and the economic harms of the drilling and fracking mm. industry. We were, at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, we had long before fracking ever, you know, was well known or was known to our region, we had actually, through our advocacy, 
secured a special body of regulations that give the highest level of protection to the Delaware River, something known as special protection waters, through a relatively unique regulatory agency we have called the Delaware River Basin Commission, which protects the entire Delaware River watershed as a unit, despite the fact that this watershed spans portions of four states. So it's quite unique. It's not a watershed within, wholly within one state, and so you could see how a regulatory agency might be set up within that state just to protect that waterway. This watershed spans four states, and yet our four states and federal government came together years ago to put in place this special agency. Long story short, through this agency, we got this special, special recognition, this special body of regulations that demanded that the existing water quality, high water quality of the Delaware River always be protected. So when fracking came knocking at the boundaries of the Delaware River watershed, we went back to that that agency, the Delaware River Basin Commission, and that special body of regulations, and we said, you can't frack and protect the existing water quality of the Delaware River. And as a result of our advocacy and activism and the grassroots campaigns we organized, we got put in place a moratorium that to this day has prevented any drilling and fracking from happening within the boundaries of the watershed. But of course, in other portions of the four watershed states, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, you know, the, 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 these protections didn't go in place. Um, and so outside of the watershed in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, drilling and fracking was devastating our environments, devastating our communities, and the frackers, through heavy investments, right, in the, in the political campaigns of legislators and even governors, really had really had the political leaders on their side. And in yeah. 2012 passed an incredibly devastating pro-fracking piece of legislation that despite how bad it already was when it came to the fracking industry, it was about to get a whole lot worse because of this, the passage of a law known as Act 13. Yeah, I was reading your book about that, and it's just so sinister. What's so bad about it? it? It is. So, so, you know, it was literally a gift basket to the industry, which of course it would be because they wrote it for themselves. And it did things like put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards that apply to every other industry in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But the frackers would now get an automatic waiver. Um, it said that if there were uh, threats, to private drinking water wells caused by nearby fracking, the frackers were relieved of the duty to notify um, the residents dependent upon those water wells about that potential contamination. The, the, the law put in place a medical gag rule. So doctors who were concerned about the impacts of fracking chemicals and releases on their patients wouldn't be allowed to access information from the industry about the chemicals that were being used unless they signed a document promising not to disclose any of the indus- any of the information that had been shared with them by the by the fracking industry which meant that the doctors couldn't even speak with their own patients about the oh chemicals 
that they had been potentially exposed to. And it went so or far. Or with each other. Doctors exactly. Doctors couldn't other, consult Peter. with doctors. Um, and, of and course, the even, frackers didn't have, to, they didn't have to disclose what the chemicals were. I mean, that was just amazing that nobody could find out what they were putting in the ground. And they still have, they still, in states and at the federal level, have protections from having to fully disclose the chemicals that they are using, which are putting our communities, our health, our safety, and our environments at risk. Um, And, you know, the other thing that Act 13 did, well, it did a lot of other things, but one of the other things it did was it mandated that drilling and fracking be allowed to happen in every part of every community. So, in other words, in Pennsylvania, municipalities can say, look, if you're an industrial operator and you're going to come into our town, we're going to want you to go to the part of town where all the other industrial operators are located. We don't want you in the heart of our residential districts or our environmental or historic preservation zones. Act 13 said, no, no, no. You can't do that. It it mandated that drilling and fracking be allowed to happen everywhere, including in the heart of the residential communities of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as close as 300 feet from people's homes. It was devastating. Oh, my gosh. And so, so, so that's, next just, step? that's survived today? <laughs> or then well, what that's happened? right. So that's the bad story. Um, and... So at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, while we had protected our beautiful Delaware River from fracking, you know, we weren't, we weren't content to stop there because if drilling and fracking isn't safe for the Delaware River watershed, we believed we had proven it wasn't safe for any watershed. And so we continued to battle on wherever fracking in our region was happening. And I, in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, saw the passage of Act 13 and said, we have to find a way to stop this law. This is a major catastrophic threat, right, to waterways, communities, our environment, and the future of the earth. Um, but yeah. how, do you, how do you challenge a law that's been passed by your legislature and signed by your governor, right? It's a very difficult thing to do. You need a higher power. And... We realized at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, you know, myself and my team, that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there was a a constitutional provision in the Bill of Rights section of the Constitution, um, in Article 1, Section 27, that had been passed over 40 years before, but had never been used in a meaningful way to protect the environment. It was a provision that recognized and protected the rights, the inalienable rights of all the people of Pennsylvania to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. And we decided we were going to use this provision to challenge Act 13, even though the courts had ignored it for over 40 years. And so that's what we set about doing. That is not a small task. Um, and, but you did. But we did. We did. And so we also, there were also some municipalities that wanted to challenge Act 13. And so we decided to join forces with them. And the municipalities had different arguments, you know, having to do with their municipal authority. But the argument that the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, through our, our attorneys, brought to this venture was that the provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging should be declared unconstitutional 
because they violated the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. The case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which at the time was a very, very, very conservative Supreme Court, led by a very conservative Chief Justice. Um, And amazingly, in December of 2013, we got a decision out of that Supreme Court written by that Chief Justice that recognized that the harms of drilling and fracking that we were challenging would be unavoidable and that these are harms that would impact people, natural resources, um, kids and communities, both in the current day, but also there would be devastating ramifications for future generations. And that as a result, the court determined that the provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging were in fact unconstitutional because they violated the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And so as a result, in that, with that victory, we not only defeated some of the most devastating aspects of Act 13, but we breathed legal life into that long-ignored environmental rights amendment and very literally gave to the people of Pennsylvania a constitutionally recognized and protected right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. It was, it was an amazing, amazing victory. That is totally amazing that you succeeded in elevating environmental rights to the status of other fundamental rights and freedoms, such as the right to free speech and freedom of religion and due process and the right to bear arms. This becomes another right like those. That is just incredible. Bravo for Pennsylvania. Um, you explained it perfectly. Break. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you, no, I was just going to say, Rob, you explained it for people to understand perfectly because that's exactly what we did, right? People know how, how powerful the right to free speech and, and, and the right to freedom of religion, even how powerfully uh, gun rights are protected here in the U.S. because they are recognized and protected in the Bill of Rights section of our state and federal constitutions. And just as you said, Rob, that same power and constitutional legal strength now applied to environmental rights in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Yes. We have to take a short break, and we'll be right back and uh, looking more into what this means for the Delaware River. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. All together now, all together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Maya Van Rossum. Uh, the Delaware Riverkeeper. Uh, Maya, how can people uh, learn more about your work and um, especially the Green Amendment? So if people want to learn about the Green Amendment movement and our efforts to get um, these kinds of constitutional rights passed in every single state across our nation, uh, they can go to a website called, or that's www.forthegenerations, F-O-R, ForTheGenerations.org, and if they want to learn more about the work of the Delaware Riverkeeper, they can go to www.DelawareRiverkeeper.org and learn about our many battles, including against the frackers and the pipeline companies. It's a great website. They both are great, and if you want to uh, contact Maya, there's information on the website on how to get through to her, and I know from experience she's very responsive. Great. I try uh, to be. Well, yes, that is clear. Um, so, um, oh, yeah, I'd like to know more about the need for strong regulatory protections and those agencies willing to enforce the regulations. Um, you know, we need more of that. And, um, for example, I know that you've been working for quite some time to protect sturgeon, and uh, sturgeon's a really cool fish of interest to our listeners, you know, we've had two programs dedicated to just the biology of surgeons around the world and stuff, and uh, you can find that on my, um, uh, at oceanriver.org when you hit podcast, or just do the search thing and write sturgeon, and it'll get you to more sturgeon stories. But tell us about sturgeon and um, the need for regulatory protection. 
So I, I will say, you know, I, ha- I don't have many favorites when it comes to the environment. I pretty much love it all. But when it comes to fish, sturgeon, particularly Atlantic sturgeon, really are my, my favorites. And when it comes to the Delaware River's population of Atlantic sturgeon, they are particularly imperiled. The Delaware River um, actually used to have so many Atlantic and short-nosed sturgeon that, according to the history books, you could walk across the river, a very large river in parts, on the backs of the sturgeon. And there used to be so many sturgeon taken from the Delaware River for their caviar that the Delaware River was known as the caviar capital of the United States of America. That was around the 1900s. But through the actions and activities of people, right, um, we really decimated the Delaware River populations and other populations across the nation, so much so that both the Atlantic and short-nosed sturgeon of the Delaware River are, in fact, declared endangered. You, you, you shouldn't, you, I was going to say you can't take them anymore. The truth is you, sh- you shouldn't take them anymore. But um, unfortunately, you know, the way our laws are written here in the United States of America, whether you're talking about the take of um, important species, whether you're talking about water pollution, air pollution, you know, the pollution of our, of, our, of our soils and our food and other things, the way our system of government operates, the way our um, environmental protection laws are written, they're not focused on preventing pollution, preventing devastation, preventing the decimation of species before the harm happens. They're actually much more focused on accepting pollution and degradation as sort of a foregone conclusion, a necessary evil that we'll put up with. And how are we going to go about permitting or managing the inevitable pollution and degradation that, that we've deemed acceptable? Right or not even deemed acceptable yeah. because you don't think about the pollution and the degradation when government is doing their work when they're when they're passing their laws and thinking about new development projects and how are we going to create energy they're not thinking up front from the get go what's going to be the pollution what's going to be the devastation to the environment and to species across the region they don't think about that up front they think about they do their government work and make their government decisions and then after the fact. They send sort of the, 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 the process gets relegated to these environmental protection laws that are focused on permitting and managing the how, the when, the where, the pollution and the devastation and the degradation is going to happen um, when it's truly, truly far too late to figure out how can you truly avoid the harm. And so for sturgeon at this point, you know, the Delaware River doesn't just have a, 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 a population of Atlantic sturgeon, you know, that's, that's devastatingly imperiled, but we actually have a genetically unique population of sturgeon that exists nowhere else on earth but in the Delaware River. And at this point, we have less than 300 spawning adults left. And yet, despite that, Week in and week out, in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, I continue to have to fight against new and ongoing threats that are literally killing these fish. With less than 300 spawning adults left, we can't afford to lose even one to unnatural human-made causes. And yet, it's happening 
all the time. And that's because of the way our laws are written, right? Make your government decision first. Think about the environmental consequences later and then just manage them. Yeah. No, it's, that's a great example of charismatic megafauna of the sturgeon that we need to get our acts together and, and think broadly. And uh, the, the, the only silver lining is that sturgeon are long-lived. So unlike salmon, um, you know, a, a population of 300 will have a few, you know, a decade of reproduction or more and stuff. But, but still, we've just got to get those got to get those, those um, laws put in place. And on the flip side, um, there, there's some real strong, um, let's talk about the results when there is strong regulatory protection with enforcement. Uh, and I like the way in your book you address this in the beginning. Do so you begin this with a story of your son who goes fishing when he's only 10 years old? Yeah. So, so the book for, for, for just folks who are interested, it's called The Green Amendment. So it's about this entire topic. And um, I really, you know, I, I try to cover all aspects of our current system of environmental laws, um, how they're failing us, but also how protection of the environment, um, how much good, right, it accomplishes for our communities. It, it, it protects our, our health, it improves our quality of life, it creates good sustaining jobs and supports good local economies. Um, and one of the ways that, that, well, in the Delaware River, as you said, in the, in the, in the Delaware River watershed, um, because the city and state of New York have worked very, very hard to protect the environment that is the source of Delaware River waters, it means that the water in the upper reaches of the Delaware River are so clean that the people of New York City can drink that water without it having to go through a treatment plant first. Um, so it basically comes out of, uh, out, of, out of the river and it's brought down by aqueducts to the, to the city and um, is with very little touches from, from the city and state gets delivered to the people to drink it. And therefore, it's deliciously yummy, yummy water. But it also means because of all of that work to protect the quality of the, of the water so that the city of New York could, in, could avoid having to invest up to $20 billion in the construction and operations of filtration and treatment facilities, it means that the quality of the streams in the upper reaches of the Delaware River are fantastic. And so I had this lovely experience with my son after we lost you know, had to leave my, the, the special property in central Pennsylvania, um, and we were traveling around portions of New York looking at other special properties to preserve that my husband had identified. Um, we were staying in a place, and there was a local river nearby, and my 10-year-old son um, decided he wanted to learn to fish. And so he and my husband made a makeshift fishing rod from some old fishing line that they found knotted up in the house we were staying, a stick and a, and a hook on a dartboard, and they fashioned a fishing line, and we marched down to, um, to the local river and 
much to our surprise, then caught a huge, huge, beautiful rainbow trout. It was very exciting for him. He was 10 years old. This was the first time he had really fished and the first real fish he had ever caught. And it was just magnificent. And, of course, um, he and my husband admired it and then gently put it back in, in the water to swim away. And as we were walking back to the house, you know, Vim started talking to me about, you know, we have a, a, a stream that drains to the Delaware River nearby our house. Mom, how come, how come I can't catch beautiful fish like that in, in, in our stream? You know, and we had to talk about the fact that the streams near where we live are so polluted and degraded um, by de- inappropriate development and highway projects and industrial operations, and so those fish can't survive there. And, you know, and then talked about how in this, the city of New York, how they had invested in ensuring that there was only environmentally protective development and agricultural practices and business operations that were allowed to take place in the portions of the state that fed the upper reaches of the Delaware River. And as a result, they had this pure, clean water that the people of New York City could drink at low cost without having those big costly treatment plants, but they also had agriculture and business operations and development and ecotourism that provided tremendous, um, wonderful, well-paying jobs and supported good local economies. And so you had that win-win-win when you did it the right way. So, you know, I try to share stories like that in the book. Yeah, well, the big thing is that, as a dad, there's nothing more exciting than catching a big fish with their children, and uh, and we just lament that that doesn't happen anymore. And and I bet Dave was just as excited as Vim was with the size of the brook of the trout that was caught. Uh, maybe maybe even more excited. I'm not sure. I would think so. Yeah, <laughs> but they had a grand old time. Trout. Now I have to admit, I felt a little sorry <laughs> for the trout with the hook in its mouth while they were busy taking it out. But, you know, it's one of the things. Having beautiful, healthy fish like that, that's why people come to our rivers and streams because they want to enjoy, you know, interacting with nature in that way. Um, and so it creates, just as you said, it creates, does create yeah. economic health and vitality, but as you said, it creates those special, special moments that you can have with your family and your friends, or even just by yourself enjoying nature. But they get lost. They get lost when we allow nature to be degraded. But it it gives us hope that this is a river worth saving because they had that experience. Exactly. You know, we passed the, you know, the, um, yeah. So let's go on. Um, where is I? Oh, okay. So let's talk about the results. When is that? What I just asked you? No, I just asked you that one. Okay. So, so help me help us speak truth to the old saw that it's the economy or the environment, either jobs or the Delaware River running clean. You know, what's the value of a clean, healthy Delaware? You kind of said yeah. that, but maybe you got some more specifics we can put into yeah. that. So I really, um, you know, like to be very, very clear that um, it is a false choice 
to say that it's between the environment and the economy, right? You, in fact, it has been proven time and time again that you cannot have a healthy economy without a healthy environment. And we certainly can't have healthy, happy people, right, without good quality water and safe air, right, and healthy foods to eat. Um, The Delaware River is... uh, uh, provides hundreds of thousands of jobs throughout our region. It provides about $200 billion, or sorry, $22 billion of economic vitality to the region. When you look at fishing, yes. And it's because, and we've had research to show this, right? This is not, these are not numbers pulled out of the air, but when... um, Economists look at the jobs that are created by um, by the the parks and the high quality water and all of the the ecotourism industry the savings right in terms of not having to um, treat the 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 water before people of New York City and other communities right want to drink them when you toll all of that up you are talking about 22 billion dollars of value if you lose that right if you devastate the environment you lose that economic vitality if you devastate the horseshoe crab population of the Delaware Bay the largest spawning population of horseshoe crabs in the world, not only do you Mm. lose this vital, beautiful part of our environment, but there is a $150 million pharmaceutical industry that relies on the blood drawn non-lethally from the horseshoe crabs that gets impacted. There's a $32 million um, birding ecotourism industry that gets lost because the birds that support this industry are directly dependent on the horseshoe crabs and the eggs that they lay every year during spawning. And we have numbers and examples, um, you know, hand over fist, whether you're talking about the Delaware River or any river or any ecosystem across our nation, that prove the point that a healthy environment creates jobs and money and saves jobs and money. And it avoids harm. I mean, think about, think about all the expense that gets foisted on taxpayers every time you have development projects in the floodplain that um, That's right. are directly impacted by flooding and flood damages because you built those homes right by the river, right, in the part that was so harmful to the environment. Homes. Yeah, and so you, you, you not only devastate the homes, you not only worry the children, you not only force people to have to leave their homes, flee in fear and lose their, you know, their family photo albums and all their, the, the investments they've made into their homes, but somebody has to pay, somebody has to pay to help those people rebuild their lives. The people who pay yeah. are the taxpayers. Right? So there's yeah. always there's a cost to the degradation that gets avoided and money saved when we do development in the right way, in the right places, in the right spaces. And that applies to every industry. Every industry, I can give you an example of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we have to take a quick break again. And um, we don't have time to go into the importance of, you know, 
removing uh, impervious surfaces. There's a great chapter in your book about that. But we're going to pick up more about the Green Amendment when we come back after this break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Maya Van Rossum, and her book is called The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Healthy Environment. And uh, I guess it's in the foreword, but in a number of places, references, and I think accurately so, have been made comparing this book to uh, Rachel Carson's, you know, Silent Spring book of putting a light on the need to ban DDT and those kinds of chemicals, uh, this is 
taking a constitutional approach, and it, it's really exciting what you were able to, what Pennsylvania has already put in motion that you were able to pick up on and, and take it further. Um, so let's, re- um, so, you know, let's yeah. re- what are some of the, how can we transfer, you know, some of the lessons learned in Pennsylvania to other states and eventually to the nation as a whole? So after we had that victory of using that long-ignored Environmental Rights Amendment, and when I say long-ignored, the reason why it was ignored was up until our victory against the pro-fracking Act 13 law, the Pennsylvania courts had declared Pennsylvania's Green Amendment, Article 1, Section 27, to just be a statement of policy and to not really have any legal strength. I mean, a policy statement is, the way I describe it, a statement of policy is good advice. You can take good advice or you can ignore good advice. And what they did in the Commonwealth Ah. of Pennsylvania was they ignored it Um, because it it was not constitutionally enforceable against government officials who ignored it. So when we used it against Act 13 and got the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to revisit that inappropriate interpretation of Pennsylvania's Green Amendment, again, we, we instilled legal strength, but that's how we got for the people of Pennsylvania, their constitutional right to a healthy environment. So we immediately went about the business at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network and now others sort of riding on our coattails in the state um, using this Green Amendment, this constitutional environmental right to um, seek and secure other environmental protections, right, to challenge other bad things and support other good things that were happening in the state to help us define what it really means to have a constitutional right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment, and then secure those rights. But while we were doing that work, you know, I was constantly thinking about the incredible power and importance of what we had accomplished with this victory. And I started looking at other state constitutions. And I actually looked at and have looked at every single state constitution in the United States of America. And what I came to find was that there was only one other state that had a similar constitutional provision, and that was Montana. But that every other state across the nation even if they talked about the environment in their constitutions, they did not recognize and protect the rights to clean water, clean air, a healthy environment. And now I add, in our Green Amendment work, a stable climate um, in the Bill of Rights section of their constitutions. They had statements about the environment that said environmental protection is good policy. Again, that's good advice. Or that the way you protect your environment is your state legislators pass laws. But we can see with the amount of pollution and degradation we're experiencing that simply having your legislators pass laws and enforce them as they see fit is not good enough. We need to have that constitutional recognition and protection. And so that's why I started Green Amendments for the Generations. I wrote the book, The Green Amendment, and I'm doing the work of going across the nation trying to inspire and then work with communities in states across the nation to seek and secure the passage of green amendments in every single state constitution. And then ultimately, as step two, and it must be step two, it can't be step one, um, ultimately pass a federal green amendment. Right. It has to be done by a lot of states before the feds will consider it. 
And, exactly. To get a um, federal green amendment, you need you need a vote of three quarters of the states. And so, if you were laying forth a good strategy to get a federal green amendment, what you would do is exactly what I'm doing: is go state by state by state, getting green amendments passed, which provides vital, critical legal protections in that state, but has also then brought that state to the place where when confronted with the opportunity to vote for a federal green amendment, they would be more inclined to do so. So we start with the state, get powerful state protections, and then we end up at the, at the federal level. But if you start at the federal level, you'll lose. No. And, you know, right. like let's go forth with the states and do it the right way, which is what I'm trying to do with green amendments for the generations. Have you seen benefits to going by the watershed? I mean, you're in good communication with your na- other watershed states, the other three, the Pennsylvania. Um, and since they've got state commissioners involved in those commissions, um, is there any hope that that might give a leg up to those other three states? Well, so what we're they doing is, again, I really am focused on that state that state level, right, um, because that's the way that you're going to inspire and, and right. put together the well, grassroots work. the neighboring work. states have been influenced by this, right. Yes. But so since I, I think started New York would be more interested having lived through your Delaware part, and same with Virginia well, or you, something. Yeah. You got it exactly right, right? Since, since we started this movement and had our victory, we've actually been successful in getting Green Amendment proposals in New York and New Jersey, which are two of my watershed states. But we also have Green Amendment proposals in Maryland and West Virginia. And I'm actively working in other states. We've got a tremendous growing movement in the state of New Mexico, another state being battered by the fossil fuel industry, um, with interest in, in many other states in the state of Delaware and um, in Idaho and Oregon and um, so many other states where there's interest in each of these states. In Maine, there's a, there's a, the, the movement, the Green Amendment effort is at a different stage. But in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and West Virginia, we actually have a proposal. And I suspect we're going to have a proposal pretty soon, certainly a very vibrant campaign very soon in the state of New Mexico. And we have ones growing um, growing in the state of Delaware and some other states as well. It's very exciting. I like the way in your book you map out which states already have something in place and which do not. And you make the important point that those that do not, uh, one could almost make a stronger case for the need for one of these, the right one, as opposed to, and I find this in Massachusetts, getting politicians to tweak an existing bill is much harder than to get them to do a new one. So uh, people should not be discouraged if they're not as as liberal as Pennsylvania is. Yeah, and what I, I'll tell you, what I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more through my, through my Green Amendment for the Generation's work is really everybody is inspired by this. In fact, in states where they have constitutional language talking about the environment, but then, you know, again, talking about it as good public policy, for example, people are just as shocked that they don't actually have a right, a constitutional right, to clean water, clean air, a stable climate, and a healthy environment, as the states where there's no mention of the environment in the constitutions. Because when you come down to it, in the final analysis, 
none of them have the fundamental basic human right protected by the Constitution to drink water and breathe air free of toxic contaminants and, you know, to, to be supported and sustained by a healthy climate and healthy environments. And so people really are getting inspired and empowered and they can see, right? You can just see in your heart of hearts, we all believe we have a right to clean water and clean air. But when people are yeah. pointed out with the realization that you don't actually have that right in the United States of America, you might have a right to bear arms, but you don't have a right to drink clean, safe water. It's shocking for folks. And they instantly come on the path of realizing and seeing how powerful constitutional recognition can be because they see how powerful it is in these other contexts. Great point. I wish we had more time to spend on this. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, we're just running out of time. So how about a, a, a takeaway message from this? Well, you know, my goal is not just to inspire people to want to pursue a Green Amendment in their state, but to be able to work in partnership with them to make it happen. So anybody who's interested in this Green Amendment concept and figuring out how to do it in your state, go to ForTheGenerations.org and get in touch, and we will actively work with you. And let me tell you, in some states, the Green Amendment movement has been started by an organization or a coalition coming together. In some states, it's being advanced in the first instance by a good, progressive, environmentally-minded legislator. And in some states, it's just one person that got the ball rolling. In New Mexico, we have a vibrant, vibrant movement coming together. And it all started with one person who heard me talk on a radio show and called me. Yes. Maya, we are out of time. Thank you so much for telling us about your new book. I recommend that people go out and get a copy of The Green Amendment, Securing Our Rights to a Healthy Environment. Maya, thank you. Thank you so much, Rob. And that's it for another episode. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, please take care of yourself and take some care of this planet of ours. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.